Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we're here to discuss the state of education in times of emergency and crises. We've all seen in the news the past few months and over the past many years, political upheaval and social unrest in countries like Venezuela, the Ukraine, Syria, and yet we rarely know the effects on educational systems. With us today is an assistant professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, Sarah Dryden-Peterson, who is an expert on this field. Sarah, welcome to the EdCast. Thanks, Matt. So, Sarah, before we jump into what's happening right now, I'm wondering if you can provide us with some sort of historical framing. Um, Civil war unrest is nothing new. Um, From a historical perspective, how do educational systems generally fare when a country is, is really having difficulties? Um, that's right, Matt. I mean, the the impacts of of conflict on education systems and on the lives of individual kids and families are immense, um, and and this is not a new phenomenon. Um, the one of the interesting things that I found in looking at the the history of education in conflict and particularly the history of refugee education um, is just the importance that families place on education, even in times of crisis. So we see in conflicts dating back to World War II and then through conflicts in, um, in Nicaragua, in Angola, of communities, one of the first steps that communities take as they um, are living in conflict or living in exile of setting up their own schools. Um, a lot of attention is focused now on the role of the international community and UN agencies and international NGOs. In, in providing opportunities for education. But I think one of the important things to remember that we see historically and even today is that communities are the first responders um, in setting up uh, education in times of crisis. Communities are also the most deeply affected by, um, by war and crisis. This is a real change in the nature of war over the past several decades, um, really since World War II, is that um, conflict is much more deadly to civilians. Um, whereas conflict used to be, um, the impacts used to be centered on combatants as conflicts were mostly between states. Now that conflict is, is mostly within states, um, most of the casualties are civilians, and a large number of those casualties are children um, because they're caught in the crossfire, because schools and other spaces in which children hang out become targets, um, and um, because children are recruited to serve in, in armed forces. Um, and so education is both um, kind of uh, education is both implicated in conflict, and I can say a little bit about uh, that in a moment, but also really um, a victim of of crisis situations. Um, but if we think about conflict, one of the really important elements um, of thinking about education in times of crisis is that it's not um, a clear path that. Um, education is a force for good in terms of um, preventing conflict um, from recurring or preventing conflict in the first place. Um, About 10 years ago, um, an initial policy paper was written called The Two Faces of Education um, in Conflict, really looking at the way that that education can um, promote conflict, particularly through um, curriculum um, that is exclusionary, through systems of education that um, enable access or access to quality education for certain groups of people and marginalize others, particularly in rural areas, linguistic and ethnic minorities, 
girls, um, and and that education can really act as a driver of conflict in that way, as well as education acting as a force for peace and as a real mitigator of conflict in terms of being a space to discuss different tensions within society, um, as a space to promote social mobility and prevent the kind of um, exclusions and marginalizations that exist. Um, and that continues to this day that we see in conflicts education being both a political motivator of conflict as well as um, a political solution to conflict. So, Sarah, you bring up an interesting point about how how education is sort of rebuilt within the communities, but there's also these outside NGOs or or other countries wishing to help. What is that relationship like? And feel free to use um, any hard examples in Syria of what you've noticed. I mean, there's infrastructure problems, there's human capital issues, there's organizational issues. I mean, what is the interplay between the local communities organically starting things, things themselves and then also the massive amounts of aid that's coming into the country that can also help with education as well? Right. I think that that issue of kind of as it's termed in this international arena coordination is um, it seems like a, a kind of pretty dry, straightforward logistical question on the surface, but actually is a critical question in terms of thinking about how education is um, meeting the needs of, of children and families in crisis. And thinking about that interaction and relationship between community priorities and, um, and the work of international agencies and NGOs. Um, one of the interesting experiences that I had in doing a, a global review of refugee education um, with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees a few years ago was someone within UNHCR coming to me and saying, every time I go to a refugee area, kids and families tell me that education is their highest priority. Um, and yet coming back to headquarters in Geneva, um, education seems buried in a lot of the other kinds of protection issues that um, that an organization like the UN High Commissioner for Refugees is mandated um, to provide. Um, and I think this is a constant tension in, um, in crisis situations um, of hearing from communities that education is a priority, and yet in an emergency setting, international actors being very focused on what are termed life-saving uh, interventions, such as around shelter, around food, around water, um, around health care, and I'm not diminishing at all the necessity of those different elements, um, but also what I've come to learn from refugee communities over, the over time is that even in situations where basic needs, um, where it's challenging to meet basic needs, that education um, remains a top priority um, for families. Um, in, in, um, in learning from refugee families in Syria um, in, in September, right before back-to-school time in Syria that obviously coincided with our back-to-school time here in North America, um, I, was, I was humbled to hear of the um, family's desire for continued education, even in a time when um, families weren't sure whether, whether their, their um, homes would be bombed the next day. Um, and, and I think a large component of that is education being seen as this connection to a stable life and as connection to um, a possible future that, that comes out of conflict. Um, one of the concepts that I'm really working on now is related to borderless education and really trying to imagine how um, education could be 
um, a sort of ticket in some ways for kids living in conflict settings to be able to think of the world beyond their immediate crisis situation and, and education as their way of coming out of crisis and also navigating a world that for them is, is very interconnected. And so um, a lot of my work in, in Kenya um, with refugees from Somalia, um, these are refugees who've been living in Dadaab refugee camp in northern Kenya for 20 years or more. It's another um, particular element of, of conflict um, in our time is that conflicts are protracted. And so while, um, while for example, Turkey um, welcomed Syrian refugees um, almost four years ago with the idea that the conflict would be over quite soon and projecting a kind of budget that would allow the provision of services for refugees over a short period of time, it's become very clear that, that the conflict in Syria is ongoing and that refugees will remain in Turkey and Jordan and Lebanon for many, many years. Um, when the Dadaab refugee camps in northern Kenya were built in 1990, they were built for 90,000 people, and there are now about 400,000 people in, in, in those camps. Um, with with very little hope of returning to Somalia anytime soon. Um, and, and the role of education in that kind of protracted situation means that refugee children and their families don't know whether they will stay in Kenya over the long term, whether they will return to Somalia, whether they would be resettled to Canada or the United States, or whether they would continue to live in this kind of limbo where the future is very uncertain. Um, and thinking about education as a way to navigate that uncertain future and to create opportunities for oneself within that, um, within that uncertain future is one promising way of getting, of, of helping children and families to, um, to get out of the very challenging situations that they find themselves in in conflict settings. You bring up some great examples. You know, obviously the news is focused on the Ukraine and Venezuela, but it, it seems like education is in crisis all the time all across the world. And I'm wondering if there's any, if there's any lessons to be learned based on all, everything that you've researched over your time uh, in the field that, that can be learned for and applied to, you, to the Ukraine, to Venezuela, to other countries that are going to go through and are going through many similar issues that are currently happening in parts of the world that probably aren't getting any media coverage. Um, I think one of the big lessons is that while education has been seen as um, a development endeavor, particularly because it has to be thought of over long periods of time. Education doesn't happen for a month and then finish. We think of a, um, a trajectory of education for each individual child. Um, there's been a separation between being able to think about education in an emergency or humanitarian phase and waiting to think about education in, um, in a development phase when, when a crisis stabilizes. And there's been a lot more um, understanding of and advocacy for um, thinking about education um, immediately in any kind of emergency response. Um, and I think this is a real lesson for all um, crises. It's easy to get to get bogged down in the um, in the the very immediate health and water and sanitation issues of um, of people who are living in an acute conflict. Um, and yet, if the if the building of possibilities for education doesn't happen from the beginning, it's very hard to get that going later on. Um, and I think one of the lessons um, learned is going back to what we were speaking about at the beginning in terms of the role of communities. 
um, of instead of um, bringing in ready-made solutions for education from other places, although clearly there are lessons, um, of really trying to understand what's going on in a local situation, what ways our communities are already providing education for their children, what kinds of resources are available in terms of, um, in terms of teachers. There are, are thousands of Syrian teachers living in Lebanon and Jordan um, in situations where there are not enough teachers to meet the needs of these burgeoning populations. And thinking about the role that trained teachers who have a real commitment to education for um, their people um, and what role they can play in, in an education system in a country of exile um, is one critical, critical lesson that way. I think another critical lesson is really thinking about systems. You started off the, um, this conversation with this idea of uh, we not only think about the education of an individual um, child, but also about what this means for education systems, both in countries that are affected by conflict and countries that are hosting children who are affected by conflict. Um, and engaging with, um, with national systems from as early as possible really helps to enable the creation of um, a stable kind of system going forward. So um, while it, it can be tempting, I think, to create um, educational opportunities outside of whatever national system exists, given that national systems are also fragile, that, they're, um, that often governments in conflict-affected areas are unable to provide education, um, that sustainable solutions over the long term involve engaging at that systems level and working with governments and, and developing relationships. I mean, oftentimes these um, discussions about education and decisions about um, what form education will take, who will be involved, who the teachers will be, happen at very individual levels. Um, and, and we get kind of bogged down in the institutional politics of things. And when we get to the, the core relationships, um, we see that there is much more agreement than disagreement in terms of building futures um, through through education. Sarah, last question, and, and, and you bring up uh, an interesting point. So for our listeners, um, educators, parents, teachers, grad students, um, what is the most effective thing that, that they can do, that we can do here, whether you're sitting in Cambridge or California, to, to move this work forward in a way that is helpful and that is an advocacy role, but that also isn't intrusive or going down essentially the wrong path? Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think that's a constant question, not only for people who, who don't work in this field, but also for people who do. Um, and, and a couple of elements I'd like to mention. I think that something I brought up earlier is the issue of um, – of the transience of some of these crises in our own media. Um, and while I clearly don't want to underestimate the magnitude of the crisis in Syria, there are other crises going on around the world where millions of children are also affected and unable to access school or unsafe in their school environments. The proportion of children affected by conflict in Central African Republic in terms of the population of that country is equivalent to the proportion of children being affected by crisis in Syria right now. Um, and I think being able to, to, to pay attention and care widely about these kinds of crises enables um, us as a global population to stay connected to um, the experiences of children and families in, in many parts of the world. Um, I think that, that, um, that thinking about 
ways that one can contribute, whether that's through um, donations or through um, paying attention and raising awareness of these kinds of issues, um, is important. And and I think this is important for um, for kids of all for kids and grown-ups of all ages in many ways. I think that that using education and the experiences of kids in other parts of the world to help young people and our own families think about um, about challenges around the world and how they can get involved. Um, I think it's much easier for kids um, in the United States, for example, to think about the challenges of kids um, from Syria or in Syria that they have in going to school than it is to think about um, a civil war in general. And so starting that awareness-raising process of these issues of education among young people, I think, can be a really effective um, advocacy tool. I think continued pressure on our own governments and on donors to think about what kind of aid is most effective. Um, of only about 1% of humanitarian aid goes to education. Um, and coming back to this idea of the priority that communities place um, on education, I think it's worth us all um, engaging with um, those who make decisions about where aid is allocated and putting pressure on on our governments to think about um, respecting those priorities of communities and funding something like education that really has the possibility of building futures rather than destroying them. Sarah Dryden-Peterson, thank you very much for being on the ACAST today and, and sharing all this, all this wisdom that you have from the field and, and from research. Thanks, Matt. It's been great to talk with you. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening.